Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. It's volume 11, issue 539, and we've landed on Metroid Prime. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue are Brian Edwards. Hello, hello. And Carl Moon. Hey, everyone. Metroid Prime, then, is actually, did I make a mistake? Well, kind of, sort of, but not really. This is the fifth game in Nintendo's Metroid series of sci-fi arcade action adventures and the first in polygonal 3d played from a first person perspective uh, metroid fusion is officially the fourth but we're actually covering that in that in our next metroid podcast basically it was that it lined up nicely and also we'd done obviously we'd done three 2d ones in a row so i thought it would make a nice change and then we'll be back on the 2d metroids for the next few in fact Forever again, um, thinking about it. No, we'll do we'll do the other primes as well. But uh, <laughs> but actually, all the other games, uh, even the likes of Other M and Dread, are kind of more classically Metroid. And so Prime exists as this sort of side story. Uh, more of which later. Our histories. Then it's twenty years since Metroid Prime came out. There or thereabouts. Brian, were you were you primed and ready? <laughs> Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, huge fan of the 2D Metroids. Um, I think Fusion was the reason, or maybe it was Zero Missions, the reason I ended up getting a Game Boy Advance. So, um, mm. yeah, I was definitely all in on this game. I can't tell you whether or not I got it day one because it was college, so it was definitely dependent on either the money I had or the games I could trade in for. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But close to launch, I, I got Metroid Prime. I had a, a GameCube in my uh, dorm room in college, and... Um, I remember just getting this game and being pretty obsessed with it until I until I completed it. Um, it was a nice change to see how they were able to develop, uh, you know, the Metroid style game into the first person perspective, mm-hmm. and um, for all the reasons we're going to talk about in the show, I'm sure. So, uh, but yeah. yeah, had it had it then, uh, repurchased it um, as part of the Wii trilogy um, yes. uh, collection, and then am hoping to purchase it on Switch <laughs> at some point. How many times time. <laughs> are we going to mention that in this yeah. show? I wonder. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's a game that um, I I played through recently for this show uh, via uh, emulation, mm-hmm. um, dolphin style, dolphin high style. high resolutions. Yes, yeah, high resolution. Oh. It was really nice. Um, I wanted to play it with a with a controller, and uh, getting the GameCube out and getting it together was a lot more work mm. than just pressing click on my laptop. So, uh, but yeah, so I played through probably four or five times over the course of. Uh, uh, the last 20 years. Wow, goodness me. 
Carl, I know this is one that you've wanted to talk about for a long time. And uh, I know that you've said quite a few times that you uh, obviously will get more into the detail of the the sort of the Wii version compared to the GameCube original. But mm-hmm. were you there for the GameCube original? Uh, n- yes and no. So this feels really unusual because I feel like it's it's the standard spiel of, oh, yeah, I got it day one, was well prepared for it and everything. And I was well prepared. I was very much aware of it. I did have a GameCube. I got that at launch. I was at university at the time. I was very much hyped on the uh, Halo train at that point. And mm. this was kind of, I suppose, Nintendo's Halo killer. You know, we were in that period of time <laughs> where everyone was looking for a Halo killer. Yeah. And I looked at it and I thought, it looks really good. It looks good, but it's a little organic looking. Organic scares me ever since Zen in uh, Half Life. So right. <laughs> I try to avoid that uh, <laughs> as like an aesthetic. It's just, it concerns me a, a lot. I, I play more bad games than good um, that focus on that um, because that's what the primarily what I felt like the trailers and the, uh, and the uh, magazine media was like. It's not necessarily mm. the case when you play the game, obviously, as you mm. know. Um, and then there was a very strange thing with the reviews in that there was a lot of positivity, a lot of positive reviews, but if you actually read the body of the text, there was a lot of, well, the mm. controls are a little bit niggly, the controls don't feel quite yeah. right, you know, mm-hmm. the, the lock-on, it feels um, a bit odd with the the one direction and um, as, as a primary thing, you know, it felt very much going back to the traditional uh, perfect dark kind of you know hold a button to aim kind of stuff and i was like right it felt so smooth and fluid in the likes of halo obviously mm. uh what time splitters would have done it as well um yeah these were on consoles y- that yeah had a the, twin twin analog sticks whereas the gamecube of course had the rubber sort of camera stick as the second c exactly. stick and they they elected not to really use that in that function on this particular game and it i was like these reviews this seems like it should be right up my street but i know i will not like these controls it feels like it's a huge step back and i actually avoided the game as a result Mm. um even though i looked almost uh, well maybe not envy uh, enviously because i could have picked it up i had the means to do it i had the console i had my student loan that i'm still paying for um, from (laughs) university that i could have bought it with uh, but I just didn't pick it up um, uh, on, on the GameCube. And I remember having a conversation years, years later, uh, and I still remember this really vividly, and it was with the oft-fired-from-the-podcast James um, on Twitter where he had the Wii version. And I was playing Dead Space 3 at the time. Don't know why I remember that so clearly. Um, and he was like, do you want to borrow a copy of it? I think you might actually like it. And I was like, well, okay, as you do. Um, so I guess my experience, you would say, was 11 years later um, mm. from launch, even though I was very much there at launch, wanted to pick it up, and then, despite the positivity, avoided it because I feel like I might be the only person that never really liked the GameCube controller very much. Um, yeah. And it felt like, Although a good controller for some games, it really felt like it would annoy me more than I would enjoy the game as a result mm. of it. And I ended up avoiding the GameCube version. Right. Yeah. So actually the 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 potential possible Switch version and or what Brian has done and played it via emulation gives you the kind of the closest 
to uh, standard, what we now consider traditional controls. Mm. But actually what they did on the Wii was something interesting and they reverse engineered the Metroid Prime 3 controls into the game, into the first game. And we'll, we'll talk about whether that works or not. Um, we've got some opinions on that from correspondents. I do remember the day that I bought Metroid Prime. It was launch day and I don't know specifically why I remember it. This clearly, it's obviously 20 years ago. Some games from the same era don't have any recollection. But this one, I remember it was a, a fine, I guess, autumnal-ish kind of day. And I went to the uh, the game that was then on Western Road Brighton. And I went in straight after work and I bought it. And then I bumped into my mate Paul, who uh, is still, still a friend to this day. I've known him since the mid-90s from the terraces at the Goldstone Ground. And we went for a couple of pints uh, before I went home and started playing it. And um, I, yeah, it's just a really, it's not a major memory, but it's a it's a strong one for whatever reason. Um, and I remember starting the game and firing it up and that title screen and that music instantly capturing my attention. And then, yeah, I pretty much played it obsessively for the next, I don't know how long it took me, I guess a week or two to uh, to thoroughly beat it. Um, so yeah, the... There's a lot out there about the development of this game. And because I don't want us to go too long on it and, and uh, in a discussion show rather than a documentary show, I will point you towards, listener, uh, there's some interviews with the, the developers uh, and on YouTube, uh, Mike Wicken, Wicken uh, Jack Matthews and, uh, and Zoid. Um, and there's also a uh, uh, is it uh, what's the name of the guy? I'm just looking it up. Oh, it'll have been the one I watched as well. I guarantee. Matt Mc, Matt, Matt McMuscles. That's it. Um, Matt McMuscles. What happened? Metroid Prime. Uh, really, like I, I'm not a massive fan of the delivery on that channel, but um, there's a there's a bit too much kind of zany humor and whatever for my tastes. But it's really well researched. The content is solid, and it goes into. I think what it's fair to say was uh, was not an, a straightforward, easy development. Uh, so according to Moby Games, Nintendo gave the development of Metroid Prime to the US-based Retro Studios in part due to the fact that the Metroid series, while being incredibly popular in the US, had never sold as well in Japan. Retro Studios also worked on a role-playing game for the GameCube called Ravenblade, of which a video was shown during E3 2001. However, in late 2001, it was announced that that game was cancelled by Nintendo so that focus would be more on Metroid Prime or exclusively on Metroid Prime. Early screenshots, according to the IMDb, show that Retro Studios was initially developing the game as a third-person shooter with Samus Aran seen from the back. However, veteran Nintendo, Nintendo member Shigeru Miyamoto <laughs> voted against this due to the difficulties that had been encountered when trying to implement a third-person camera in Jetfall's Gemini. Hmm. A more intuitive first-person interface was chosen, except when in Morph Ball mode, <laughs> thank goodness, <laughs> meaning that development had to start again almost from scratch. And this was made in an engine dubbed Rude, the retro-universal design engine. USA. USA. <laughs> yeah. Everything's rude. So, of course, Nintendo published it. And it was released, actually, it just goes to show my memory was imperfect. The reason it was a bright day was because the European version didn't come out till March 2003. <laughs> it, it launched first in North America, November 18th, 2002. So, yeah, we're coming up to its 20th, uh, 20th anniversary, which some have speculated may see 
the release of the Switch version. But we are now at the time of recording one month and 18, uh, eight days, no, one month and 17 days away from that. And it still hasn't been officially announced. So we shall see. Yeah, the game actually was staggered, released uh, first in North America, then in Brazil territories in December, then Japan in February 2003, and then the EU March 2003. There are a few minor differences between the versions. There were some exploits and things fixed in that period, but also a weirdly an American voiced narration was added to the European version over the title, which personally I really don't like. And I think it's much better without. So I'm not sure what they were doing there. And Australia finally got the game in April 2003. Happily, by this point, we were getting 60 hertz options in our PAL games. So there was no issue with the game being boarded or running slower or anything like that. First, correspondent for this show is Kermit McElmo. We were talking Muppets before we started. (laughs) Here is one from the forum. I'm standing there in Woolworths picking what bundle I want for the new GameCube my mum is getting me for my birthday. The bundle I picked was, of course, Metroid Prime, which, of course, came with a Samus plate that I could put in the top of the console. Obviously, with a purchase like this, there was no way I was also getting any pick and mix. My first memory of plugging in and setting it up was the colours, this beautiful labyrinth of colour. I remember how lost I used to get in this game, literally and metaphorically. I remember that little plate thing that you could slap on the top of your uh, little Samus logo that you could stick on the top of your GameCube, but I didn't have one. James McCall from our Patreon says, such an atmospheric game, still beautiful and plays so smoothly. I do prefer the Wii controls that came later, but the sense of exploration and loneliness are still second to none. That word comes up a lot whenever you read anything about Metroid Prime, and it seems a weird thing that it, people find so appealing about it, this sense of isolation and yeah. loneliness. And I think it is a word, it's probably been used by us on our previous Metroid shows, but there is something about this one in particular that does give, maybe it is just the first person and the and the soundtrack, but it really does convey a sense of kind of isolation in a way that a lot of games don't necessarily manage. Or they manage, but unintentionally, and it's a negative impact on the game. Because the online doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. The Wii version arrived first in Japan as a solo release under the New Play Control label, which we also discussed when we were talking Pikmin and Donkey Kong Jungle Beat, which also had New Play Control versions. That was February 2009. And then the trilogy arrived in the US in August and the uh, European regions in 2009, September. So, yeah, uh, 13 years ago, I guess. Um, And yes, sometimes... Like our next correspondent, Sean S. Thomas from our forum, you get lucky. Sean says, one night I was doing my shop in Sainsbury's and I thought I'd check out the bargain DVD clearance bin. And I'm sure I let out an audible squeal. There, still in cellophane, was Metroid Prime Trilogy, mine for £20. I put half my shopping back and knew it had to be mine. And it's one of the best calls I ever made. I adore Metroid Prime. I rarely replay games, but every few years I go back to Prime and still find it baffling that this was made when it was. From the start, you know what Samus is capable of at her absolute best. Missiles feel glorious. The Morph Ball is a joy. You're introduced to the controls in a way that avoids feeling like a boring tutorial and ends with a climactic chase sequence down to the planet's surface. And then you're alone. 
The rain pours down your visor. You catch sight of your face as the blast from your arm cannon is discharged. Doors that lead to new areas are locked high above you, reminding you to return. And the music makes you feel like you're on an alien world. On the subject of the transition to the Wii controls, the Prime 3 controls, Third Drawing says, I much prefer the GameCube controls. They're more precise, easier to handle and less finicky. I've never been able to finish Prime 3 because of the Wii controls. So, yes, uh, I think there'll be there'll be differences around that. Um, certainly, uh, I remember wrestling a bit with the GameCube controls. And when Prime 3 came along, I was more than happy to play it that way with the, the nunchuck and the Wiimote. But even this week on our on our Kane and Rinse Slack channel, we've had, uh, you know, the, the thing that I've heard so many times over the last 15 years, which is in this case, it's uh, our Thomas. But I've seen this so many times. I really wanted to like Super Mario Galaxy, but I can't, you know, I can't yeah. abide the, the nunchuck and Wiimote controls, yeah, yeah. which for me, me, absolutely not a problem. And in fact, I ended up embracing and adoring those controls. But I can I can understand why not everyone wants to get used to a whole kind of different feeling control set to what we're very, very, very used to at this point. That Wii U eShop release, which was exactly the same code as the Wii version, arrived on January 29th, 2015, a mere seven years ago, seven and a half. Toon Scottoon from our forum says, playing the remastered Metroid Prime on Wii U, not really remastered, <laughs> uh, sort of. I mean, it's widescreen as well, I suppose. Playing it in 2022, says Toon Scottoon, I absolutely, res and, uh, absolutely respect the artistry and craft that went into making this game nearly 20 years ago. But I think the most interesting thing about this version uh, of the title is that Nintendo decided to force players to use motion controls to play it. I get that they were proud of their ability to simulate having an actual arm cannon with the Wiimote, but functionally, I'm just not as skilled at aiming with my arm, and I imagine most other people aren't either. Furthermore, toggling between shot types using the point and click method was cumbersome to my taste. I guess it is another thing that, yeah, if you'd if you'd barely ever played a, a Wii based game with a with a pointer in your hand I guess yeah it's probably there's probably a certain amount of getting used to it and certainly I've, I've you know replaying the the Wii version recently I definitely had bits where the cursor's flown off the side of the screen and yeah and all that so it's yeah I wouldn't say it was perfect so uh, despite what Carl said and I, I think you, you you're probably you probably raise a good point there about some of the the minor criticisms that were contained within the body of review text the reviews overall were absolutely stellar yeah. the game was the highest rated game uh in many places of the year it came out it has a metacritic score of 97 having scored a nine in edge and a 10 in egm and a 9.5 in game informer and a 9.7 on GameSpot, and a 996 on GameSpy, and a 98 on ign and so on and so forth it received multiple awards, the Edge Game of the Year, the EGM Game of the Year, the Nintendo Power, the GameSpot, the GameSpy, all Game of the Year. Runner-up runner in the Golden Joysticks Game of the Year to another GameCube first-party title, The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, and also runner-up on IGN. User scores, as we look at it today, Metacritic, it has an 8.9. Nintendo Life, it has a 9.3 and IMDb, it also has an 8.9. And each of those is from at least 1000 plus people. Sales wise, 
don't know exactly, but 2.8 million plus is the most accurate. So Metroid Prime takes place between the original Metroid and Metroid 2 Return of Samus. See our previous podcasts on those games. Metroid Prime has a science fiction setting in which players control the bounty hunter and series protagonist Samus Aran. The story follows Samus as she battles the space pirates and their biological experiments on the planet Talon 4. That's how Wikipedia has it. On Moby Games, explaining uh, a, b- a bit more about the back, back, backdrop scenario. Long ago, a bird-like race of creatures called the Chozo became extremely advanced technologically, but due to increasing violence in the universe, they began to hide and live more simple lives. The planet Talon 4 was the site of one of their colonies. Years later, a meteor crashed on Talon 4, releasing the strange element Phazon into the planet. Phazon poisoned anything it came in contact with, causing the plant and animal life to either die or mutate into hideous forms. The Chozo tried to control the power of Phazon but failed. Before abandoning the planet, they were able to cover the impact crater with a temple and seal of Phazon into the planet's core. Now, space pirates have discovered Talon 4, moving in to study Phazon and harnessing its power. They have also begun rebuilding their fortress on planet Zebes or Zebes and reviving the Mother Brain, Ridley and Kraid, although Kraid doesn't actually appear in this uh, game, all of whom were destroyed by Samus Aran. However, Samus has tracked the space pirates to Talon 4 and must now enter the planet to destroy them once and for all before they have a chance to rebuild their destructive forces. I don't know about you two. I never really cared about any of that when I was first playing this game. It was just enough. Like, I was reading the logs and scanning things, and that was cool. But uh, it was actually more fun for me to kind of piece it together uh, as I was going. I I didn't really have much clue other than, obviously, I'd seen some of Super Metroid by this point. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting that you've touched on the fact that, you know, you, you piece stuff together. One of the things I absolutely love about Metroid Prime is, I suppose it's this game's version of collectibles, right? Is mm-hmm. is finding the little information logs, scanning them, reading those little pieces of information. It felt like it was the closest I was to being a scientist from a game since Half-Life, where I was at <laughs> least learning about the history of something mm, that was yeah. happening and the things that were going on. And that felt really, really cool because that's where... I started to get a different feel from this game, um, separate from how I expected it to mimic quite closely to Halo. Uh, because you got to remember, I came to this a long time later, and that was a further 10 years of my mind basically saying, well, this is Nintendo's version of Halo. It's going to be very, very similar. And actually, this was something that Halo didn't have that I really loved, and it meant that it changed the pacing and the way that I played the game. So that actually learning the information from those logs, finding them, scanning the room, finding out how to get to those logs, etc., was just really, really enjoyable. It's something I do enjoy when it's done well in games. Um, and I feel like Metroid Prime really, really nailed how to do that in the correct manner to make that enjoyable and maintaining the cor- not necessarily the correct, because you can play games in different ways, but it felt like it didn't take away from the natural pacing of the game as well. It does have that nice um, kind of optional story engagement if you want it, but also allows you to just run through as Samus and you mm-hmm. know blast the aliens away and have fun, blow yeah. things up and get through, uh, fight the big bosses and stuff. It it, it is um, it's a much more modern approach to storytelling for a twenty year old game than I would expect, mm. um, which is which is interesting. Um, 
the 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 bingo card uh, scratch off uh, comparison would be, of course, the from software games. But I think that um, here it having so much to scan, all those things uh, kind of kept behind scan logs. They're not forcing you into cutscenes. They're not forcing you to read documents in order to progress. Um, that that just allows you to get as much or as little of it as you want. But it doesn't ever really stymie progress, which I would really appreciate from things because there's some games where I do want to sit down. I want to read every log. I want to, <clears throat> I want to mm. play Bioshock. I want to listen to every audio log. I want to read every diary entry, all those things. But then there's some games where it's like, yeah, yeah, that it's all interesting, but I just want to get back to, you know, blasting aliens. So um, having that alternative method to doing so, it does seem like a, a more mature take on storytelling than maybe was normal for the time. Pecan Pie from our Patreon says, this has my favourite narrative of any game in all Nintendo's franchises. That's what stood out to me the most, replaying uh, this game for the first time in nearly 20 years. I like it because it isn't a complex sci-fi story, but instead allows the intrigue to come from the immersion of exploring the ruins and scanning with your visor. I remember at the time my Xbox Halo playing friends wondered why I had a GameCube. This game (laughs) was the easiest answer to that question. Let's get on to the graphics, the visuals, and and also the the technical side of things. Um, just for me to open up by briefly saying, at the time, so yes, this was uh, I'd, I'd had Halo for a year at this point, and I knew that the Xbox was kind of the most powerful console at the time. I did have a PC as well, so there were probably technical things happening there that couldn't be done on consoles. But the GameCube was a capable little purple box or black box or whatever, depending, um, and for 2002-3, the graphics in this game were as cool as anything I'd ever mm. played. Yeah, there's that moment um, in that initial base where you land, before you land on the planet, kind of the tutorial section, where you fl- uh, slip into Morph Ball for the first time, <clears throat> and you take that, you go into the tube, and you're just kind of expecting the Morph Ball to kind of go along straight, but then you, you come around a corner, and the ball turns and flips on its end, and clearly is going, <laughs> and you're like, it was one of those things that, like, you almost had to do a double take at it. Like, wow, that looks and that that's reacting like a real ball would react against these walls and doing these things. And you and you mm. pop right out of it into that visor, go through the mist, the mist sticks on your visor. It's just like, yeah, really strong opening. Just kind of kind of puts you in the feeling like, oh wow, this is a like this is a serious like serious game and like big mm-hmm. air quotes. But but it does a great job using the visuals to sell that this is not. Um, not a product that was either one to be uh, either cheaped out on or that couldn't hang with the competitors. It, it felt that way right off the bat. And um, still, even though I was playing with some upgraded textures and stuff like it, those first few moments where you're slipping into morph ball and you're going around and you're you, the, the way Samus is uh, gun arm, like it f- it flaps open for the missile deployment or later on when you're changing between beam styles and just like the different visual flourish you get from the s- swaps and, uh, it, it still looks really nice as a 20-year-old game. Mm-hmm. So my, obviously, my experience of seeing or, you know, actually firsthand this mm. game came, down the line. came yeah. a lot later down the line. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about, I mean, there's there's different ways to look at graphics, isn't there? There's, obviously, there's the fidelity, then there's the design, then there's, you know, the the... the the actual art style um, mm. that all comes into it. So we're looking now, I mean, 11 years 
you know, 10 years from the EU release, but 11 years since it released on the GameCube. And I come to this on the the, the Wii. Yeah. And I can honestly say that as good as you think this game looked on the GameCube, this is my favorite looking game on the Wii. Mm. So yeah. a whole generation after, yeah. I still think that this is the best looking game on that console. I mean, you could, I, you could make arguments for potentially its sequels in certain ways, but um, I, I think just the, the whole marriage of art style um, is just absolutely incredible. And as awe-inspiring as Halo was for its vast scapes, that yeah. it had in its large levels, that it felt like that same craft was in reverse in Metroid Prime, where it would put you into tight spaces, mm. but still sell this unbelievable world of being huge and complex and labyrinthine yeah. around you. Mm. And that is incredibly rare in games to be able to do that, uh, particularly from this generation. I mean, you still don't really get it that often now. Um, that that can actually, you, you know, Brian's kind of already, you know, mentioned, and I don't make this reference a lot, but it does get mentioned a lot on the podcast, is that kind of that FromSoft world building, that, that yeah. world existing outside of the area you are, yeah. but actually still being large. Metroid Prime absolutely nails that. It's absolutely tremendous. Um, and, and it's it's something that, you know, we, we haven't covered this one yet, but Metroid Dread. Um, and mm. uh, I mean, could you imagine if we we had recorded this podcast earlier than Metroid Dread being announced, and how mm. somber it would be that we still haven't seen a Metroid game? You know, mm. or, or like a, you know, a, a main series home console release, I should say. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just it to ha- we see it more and more now in those FromSoft games, and it gets praised, and it gets praised, and it gets praised, and I don't think that that's where the focus necessarily was on Metroid Prime when it first released, despite the praise, you know, because mechanically brilliant, you know, uh, control-wise, I'd argue, yeah, I don't know. I Genuinely, I can't comment on, on that GameCube version, but the Wii mm. version nailed that. Mm-hmm. But now, looking back on it 20 years later, that is still a world I have every bit of interest in playing. And, mm. I, you know, we will talk more on the Switch version. Is it done? Is it not done? Is, are we going <laughs> to get it? Etc. <laughs> There's a reason I am so desperate mm. to get my hands on that Switch version um, because it's an ultimate day one release so that I can go back in and revisit that world and play right. it the yeah. way that I need to play yeah. it. I yeah. love that art style in this game. Yep. Yeah, and and for me, it's um, like I'm playing it now on, on my big LCD and um, and I'm conscious that... And Mikhail was supposed to be with us but couldn't make this recording... And I'm conscious, I know what he would say, he would advocate playing this on the GameCube on a cathode ray tube. And that's how the graphics were designed to be seen. Absolutely. Um, even even the Wii version, obviously, that was kind of at the point that when the Wii came out, people were transitioning. Um, certainly my first Wii monitor was a cathode ray and, and before plugging it into, a, into an LCD later. Um, and I think maybe this game is still served best by a not absolutely gigantic... Uh, LCD screen because the, yeah. you know the, the the blacks and the smoothness and all that 
it's telling as well that, that I think Nintendo and Retro were proud of this game's technical achievements. They even included if you had a screen that supported it and the right cables, it supported progressive scan mode rather than the interlace mode. So everything looked even smoother and sharper and crisper and less shimmery. Um, but playing it now on a very, you know, by the standards of then, a very large screen um, and uh, an LCD, there are, you know, there are there are imperfections to it. Um, and it also shows up, obviously, in a world of Demon Souls on the PS5 and whatever else. The geometry is very low poly by modern standards. Yeah. Uh, and there are some times when things are a little unclear and murky because it's, yeah, the, the environments aren't that complicated. The, the the lighting isn't that complicated and all that. But for all that, over the, the 20 hours or so I've put into my current playthrough of it um it still works like it still holds together it's still um maybe it's not as immersive as it was in 2003 but it's it's still i would i find myself as immersed in it as kind of plenty of games with more contemporary triple a you know shiny super high res 4k graphics um and that's got to be to do with the design and i think what you avoid with it being a 20-year-old game is, and with it having the limitations of the hardware. We talk about this a lot for many reasons in, in, in mm. several shows. But just that limitation of, of the hardware and of, of what it was able to accomplish, the fact that they were able to accomplish, accomplish this art style, these visuals, at such a high frame rate so early on, before we yeah. were really talking about, like we weren't talking about frame rates in, in not 20 so years ago uh, no. not in the way that we do now. Um, no. And it just... The way this game looks and moves together is still special. And yeah. it, whether it's, you know, just flanking around a couple of those early enemies so you have to shoot them in their big red tails, you know, to blow them <laughs> up, or or if you're um, switching into scan mode to um, highlight whatever rock in that giant rock monster you had to blow up at that specific time, like, it's, it, it just, it flows in a way that a lot of games from the era just didn't, and it, it stays together. It doesn't dip. It doesn't, and it doesn't feel like it's sacrificing anything to do that. And I don't know how like, that's just a feeling. That's just my feeling. I'm sure mm. that there's a lot of magic yeah. going on under the hood. That's making that. But me as a player experience, it's just like they're. it felt like they're pulling off every single thing that they were going for. And yeah. to have such a consistent experience in a game like this, um, which was a game that wasn't that common at the time like like the term metroidvania didn't exist yet you know we were coming back the first 3d one of these that we were kind of getting into mm. and it just seemed to nail it on visuals sticking to the visuals it seemed to nail it on every aesthetic level to where whatever room i was in whatever biome i was in i believed that the reasons for it whatever lore i had scanned was oh the the poison you know has phase on has invested infected the water so then you have to go, you know, get the sun to clear the plant and do all this. So, like everything had a very believable reason to look the way it looked, to feel the way it felt, and it all worked together in tandem in a way that I just don't think even a lot of modern games succeed at. Um, the the visuals in this game go go so far to sell you on the experience that any gameplay beyond that that is good only bolsters them, and it's it's interesting because um, I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it because I haven't played it in, in, in mm. quite quite a few few years. And it just it it still felt great, still looked great picking it up. Mm. It was it was really nice to to not look back on it and be like, ah, oh, well, you know, like it didn't yeah. feel like I had to make any concessions. Yeah, it was surprising given sort of how the tech for I don't know particle effects, alpha effects, whatever 
um, things like water on surfaces since normal mapping and all that kind of stuff has become more affordable and commonplace. It's weird that this relatively simplistic effect of steam cond condensation on your visor is just a, I guess it's just a simple relative, you know, I, I'm a non-developer as I always caveat all these opinions with, but it looks like a relatively simple kind of, I don't know, transparent decal or something like that yeah. that, that gets... Just an alpha effect, yeah. Right. Um, but it's not, it doesn't really, I don't think it really animates even necessarily. Maybe it does slightly, but it's not like, it's not like the rain on the windows in The Last of Us or something where every right, drop yeah. is kind of chaotically working its way down the pane. But it doesn't matter. It's about the the effect itself, like the flashing of the uh, of Samus's eyes in the visor as, as, as certain lighting effects yeah. go off. And that, it doesn't, like, yeah. it still works. That the I, I think specifically of the of the charge beam and oh um mm. uh, power shot kind of effect like where, where you obviously you can use that as a gameplay mechanic to suck in items from afar you hold your beam mm. and it sucks them in but just the way that visual flourish of how everything in the middle screen just kind of pulls just a little bit toward it like you can feel the power of that that's all mm. the visual that's doing that you know everything mm. feels like it's sucking into this big blast and and those flourishes those little traces of light the way the 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 items kind of spin into your visor as you're sucking them in like all of those things working together it, it just sells the entire vision and yeah ian ian ianson from the forum says prime shares the same broad strokes as super metroid almost everything it did technically 60 fps detail through geometry in favor of textures ultra polished camera transitions incredible looking scan visors brilliantly smooth inputs non-repeating environments etc etc felt instantly next generation at the time of release a real step beyond almost everything else there's a great recent jeremy Parrish interview with one of the image and form founders where he explained how he always imagined that games were made by science geniuses in lab coats in big rooms of computers with blinking lights instead of normal people using PCs. This might be the last game which gave me that similar feeling. Such was the level of polish and technical prowess. How are the colours that rich? How is the movement this smooth? How can they perfectly reflect a human face against a glass visor at the same time as rendering Fendrana drifts, all while using a cookie-sized disc spinning <laughs> around inside of a 120-pound games console? <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, the, uh, we we did our GameCube show, didn't we? And we were talking about the insane price that the GameCube launched at. Yeah. Um, still, still mad. And uh, and yeah, this was an early early gen game as well. Yeah, that's a that's one of the things that I I think historically made me look on the game even more favorably than I than I do mm. now is that we had just gotten Wind Waker, um, but it, it was one of those things for me as a a big Zelda fan, a serious gamer, like the oh the cutesy art style and the, like I look back at Wind Waker now, it's one of my favorite Zelda games. But at the time, I was definitely one of those eighteen year olds. I want the serious adult Zelda, please. Like that was me at the time and. This game was kind of the antithesis to what the console had represented at that point. You know, you had your Luigi's Mansion. You had, um, uh, I'm trying to think if Pikmin came out before this. It, it just, it, Nintendo mm. wasn't putting out a lot of games that looked like this, that kind of seemed to compete directly against your PlayStation 2 and your Xbox. And just seeing this game pulled off that smoothly, as as um, as um, Ian said in the, in the correspondence, it was refreshing. Um, it, coming from a GameCube. It made you, like, remember kind of what the juggernaut that Nintendo is, and obviously Retro was the one that developed the game, but it just, 
it, it kind of leveled the playing field in my mind in a way that I didn't realize that I had kind of allowed my late adolescent brain, you know, shift the shift the things. Now, looking back historically, I, I love the GameCube as much as any of those other consoles for different reasons, and I love the the cartoony art, art style and a lot of the um, more I, I you could even say family focused entries in uh, in the console's history. But at the time, this felt like oh, Nintendo's still got it. Nintendo's back. You know they you know they they can hang with everybody else. Like that's that's the way my dumb college student brain was processing it. So mm. I had I had very similar experiences to that when when playing the game. Eric Bergman from our forum says, I think it's easy to forget just how much of a milestone Metroid Prime is in terms of 3D graphics. If you're interested in the ingenious technical solutions that made this game possible, I'd highly recommend you go to YouTube and listen to the Kiwi Talks interviews with the Metroid Prime developers. As I uh, pointed you towards earlier, Kiwi Talks is the name of the channel. That brings us naturally to the audio. And for me, this is where the game excels at least as highly as it does visually and and i guess because it's 20 years later and audio hasn't quite moved on in the same way because we were already at the in the you know cd quality sound era back then uh the the audio stands up um even better than the visuals as far as i'm concerned that that title theme title screen theme which sadly isn't uh isn't present in the same way in the trilogy version although you can listen to it via the jukebox, uh, is has uh, genuinely been close to an earworm for 20 years. It's always just about on the tip of my brain, as mm, it were. Yeah. Um, some of the in-game tracks are legendary um, as well, and there's some really nice versions of of uh, pieces of music that were already in earlier Metroids, uh, the composers being Kenji Yamamoto and Koichi Kyuma. Yeah, I don't actually know which of the names was responsible for the uh, in-game audio, but as well as some of those, uh, some of those amazing audio uh, soundtracks, the, I think even which stands up just as well is, is, is some of the, the sound effects, just the, the, the clanking of the floors, the rumbling of the lifts, the, the, the beeping, always the beeping <laughs> and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah. I can't really say enough about the, the audio in this game. Um, <clears throat> having, the way I played it this time was on my laptop via emulation, as I said before, but I was playing with um with a pretty decent set of headphones on for most mm, of the time. And yeah, me too. I guess I didn't realize how much I had missed before because, you know, playing the game originally on a CRT with the speakers that came out of the CRT was oh. long before the days of sound bars. Oh, and Brian. Even my, even my, I know, even my, my <laughs> stereo system at the time wasn't, wasn't well equipped for, for, you know, that type of setup. Uh. and. Um, yeah. So a lot of my audio uh, memories of this game came from probably a poor, maybe yeah. a poor a way of actually, you know, processing mm -hmm. those and having memories. But I still had strong feelings about the sound. But then playing through now, it was it was like a it wasn't like playing a different game. It was just like playing a game with with all of the bells and whistles turned up to 11. Right. Just the mm. like the mixing that those atmospheric kind of um, synthesizers happening in the background with you know, the sound of you progressing through the world and like the wet squish of the creatures climbing on the wall behind you. And then yeah. the sound of the rain or, or, or the water dripping from a pipe over there. Like it just much like the visuals to me, and I'm going to repeat myself a lot. I apologize. It just works all so well in tandem that I, it's hard to separate one part from another and saying, oh, well, it's the music track or it's the sound effects of the weapons or it's the enemy cries or 
the way that the um the ch- the space pirates use that kind of distorted language to shout at you as you enter mm. a room it's it all just fits together in this nice mold that creates this package of sound that even if you go on YouTube and listen to the OST which I've been doing kind of the last couple of days just kind of getting in my head mm. just by listening to the OST you don't get that whole f- experience right. that you do when you're just in that game yeah. living in that world yeah it's definitely uh, the the sound design from the sound effects are very very special in this game because as as well as the uh the art style and direction craft this incredibly atmospheric environment that you're in it can very quickly be ruined if the audio doesn't quite match that right yeah. and it, and it and it definitely does um in this regard uh, but the, probably the thing I never gave the most credit to was the music. And I think part of this is probably uh, in part in self-bias. So, you know, again, we're making the Halo connection. When everyone thinks of Halo, they think mm. of the music. Sure. It's a huge part of that environment. And I remember when I played Halo, that felt like that was music from a future generation it was so different it never felt like something that was historically we'd heard or it was like anything else this was like a a future moment that we're getting early and when i played metroid prime it felt like that was music of that moment similar to other things but now i listen to it and i listen and yes it still sounds like music from that era but it's brilliant music from that era so the soundtrack i love i i I have all three soundtracks on my pc um i do cycle them quite regular uh all three soundtracks i mean the the three prime games prime games not the the three soundtracks from metroid prime um and yeah i absolutely love them but for me as much as i love those soundtracks and they do work in the scope of the game the sound effects um and actually you know doing the 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 research for this 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 issue has uh kind of shed some light on it from you know recording burps uh to, to yeah. the lava monsters yeah, right, um, right. definitely yeah. that had me laughing um and it totally makes sense you like what once once someone you listen to it and you go yeah that sounds like kind of like a burp and you move on and then actually you listen to it and you go no no that it, that it was a burp yeah you can quite clearly hear how they made that or the fact that they deconstructed uh, different languages such as um, Yoruba from uh, one of the Nigerian dialects, uh, breaking that up for some of the monsters. For some, mm. I think it was Space, space Pirates. Right. Um, yeah. And and it's just, it somehow just works. It, all these things, I suppose it's, you know, I just suppose that's why, you know, we, we have, you know, Chris who's brought in like the Sausage Factory where you kind of understand what makes up these games uh, and then you listen back to it and you hear these people talking about how they crafted stuff for things like Metroid Prime. And it's fascinating because somehow, despite sounding utterly bizarre in their approach, putting it all together uh, and, and mixing the pot that is this game, it it's just really, really, really magical at times. Um, I love the sound effects. So, I mean, Metroid is its weapons. Metroid is the uh, the sort of the environmental uh, sound effects that you hear you know from the dripping from the steam from the the crunch of your feet like you mm. said the, the the clanging on the metal and it's it's all there and it just again 
brings back this magical moment where working all together, it just engages you so thoroughly in the moment um, that I... It, 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 those are the gaming moments that I, as a player, for you know nearly four decades now, um, so desperately look for, is where everything comes together and I feel that, that, that bit of gaming magic and I, you know, I haven't played this too recently for this issue. So I played it last in two. Th- it was just before I moved house, so it would have been two thousand seventeen, um, and it still felt as magical as it did when I originally played it. Um, and it's because of things like the sound design, mm. which is just mm. magical in this game. Let's get on to actually playing the thing. I was going to say the uh, probably the sound, the single sound that you hear the most playing this game is the <laughs> of the of the boots isn't it the jumping the jumping yeah. boots because you you press that about you know 40 times a room or something don't you so, <laughs> but it's it's just it's spot on it's exactly it sounds exactly right for the feel of the of the jump i think um but yeah getting around i i, I suppose the thing that i always thought about this and i i don't i think they must have tweaked this for for prime 3 on the wii and then and then for this version uh, the the wii version of prime 1 as I recall, and I haven't played the GameCube version for a long time, it solved one of the often heard issues about first-person platforming. So even even up to this point, so if you were playing, say, Half-Life from 98 or whatever, it would it, if you're on a mouse and keyboard, it's fine because you can just flick the mouse forwards and look down, where, look down at kind of what you're standing on. Some games had legs, some games don't, but you have a basic idea of what's underneath you. Remember playing Turok Dinosaur Hunter, first person platforming in, in that game five years earlier. And yeah, you could you know you could tilt the camera all the way down below you, but then you couldn't see what was in front of you. <laughs> so you had to kind of manually wrangle the So this was an ongoing issue in, in in any first person game that had any kind of platforming. Unless they did auto jumping, which I thought may have been a solution. They might have done the Ocarina of Time type of thing where you jump when you get to the ledge, but Maybe that would have taken away one of the key, the core tenets of Metroid yeah. gameplay. Gameplay. So what they did on the GameCube version, if I recall correctly, is when you press jump, Samus sort of looks down slightly as you go. I think, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and possibly before you land as well, or even if that wasn't happening, that's what it felt like. That's what it. That's what it seemed like was going on, and it and it made that seemingly insoluble problem suddenly go away. And so I spent how many hours it was, 25 hours probably in my first playthrough, going around this increasingly difficult to navigate world because the platforms get smaller and the enemies get more frequent and they have beams that can knock you off and things like this. But first person platforming, again, it worked. Yeah, it's the the bugbear of many a game, many a first person game and still some now. And definitely a lot then. You know, you mentioned Turok, which was... Mm. <laughs> I mean, you can't really talk about that game without the painful, you know, platforming at about five frames a second. Falling into the fog. Um, and that was a, that was really difficult. And then you play the... Uh, Halo kind of gets away with it, right? Because it's all kind of low grav, so you get a little bit more leeway on where you're going. And even then, it's not perfect. But in this... It always felt like you were in. To- it, it felt like you were Samus, and that is the. 
I suppose that's what I'm trying to get at with all my descriptions of the VR you know, type. Being, being in that moment mm. and, and seeing the reflection and having those effects on the screen and having the, you know, the, the free aim with, with the Wiimotes and then the ability to jump. It didn't feel like I was ever negatively infringed by the underlying game mechanics that were going to make me get through this game world from a mm. mobility or movement perspective. I mean, the game is not perfect in certain areas. Like, you know, the uh, the signpost in the wayfinding, etc., can be quite problematic at yeah, times. Knowing sure. what to do can definitely be problematic. But actually, in a game that is so intricate in its environment, the need to, you know... um turn into the ball form and move around these intricate spaces or have the verticality of um, ruins and decrepit ruins and trying to find your way through, it never felt like the core mechanics of being able to manipulate and move Samus through those environments was a problem. And that is impressive in any game that manages it. It's incredibly impressive in a game that has these complex, tight environments such as Metroid Prime. Um, that that never becomes an overriding frustration. I found um, the first-person platforming to be very generous and forgiving in uh, a lot of uh, good ways. I, I find that some of the first-person stuff, and I'm going to probably talk about it a little bit more when we get to bosses, um, mm-hmm. did become a little bit of a hindrance for me in some of my enjoyment in the later parts of the game. Mm-hmm. But um, what Carl said about signposting and navigation, I think, really... Uh, I think informs a little bit more of why it's easy to get around that world. Like you don't always know where you are going and the game could be much better about telling you what's next or they, they will do the hint mm-hmm. system. I know we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, but by making these spaces easy to move through and not punishing to revisit, I was always finding myself naturally, even in my most recent playthrough when I played through the game a number of times, being like, oh, well, I don't really know where to go next, but I think there was a door back in this room that I couldn't have... Yeah. Like, I don't mind traversing through four, five, six rooms again because you, I was never coming across that one room that was like, oh, man, I got to do this again. Like, it never... Not it even with some of the you. respawning enemy rooms? Well, no, for sure. The combat would, would be maybe maybe the biggest um, mm. uh, roadblock there, but but not the actual locomotion and right. platforming. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, but but yeah, no, it, it's um it it's kind of one another one of those things that uh, being a broken record that seems like it shouldn't work, but it does. And um, mm-hmm. I, like like you said, it does get more intricate, a little bit more hectic towards the end. There are a couple spots where you're in morph ball form and it switches to like a two D camera angle, but you don't yeah. realize that you're still in a three D <laughs> world and you can roll out towards the screen and fall out yeah. of the maze you're yeah. in. There's there's some finicky things there for sure, but uh, yeah. but in general, I think it, it serves pretty well. James from our Patreon says this game was my introduction to the Metroid series. I'd heard about the series, but only uh, getting into gaming from N64 onwards. Samus was nothing more than one of the characters from Super Smash Brothers. Despite this, I tried the demo when the kiosks were still around and I was hooked. It was only the space frigate level, but I'd never played anything like this before. The station was so well realized and the scan visor turned into my favorite feature. Having never played any sort of console FPS before, I found the co- the controls incredibly natural. There was a sense of weight as you moved Samus through the environment, not just the feeling of a floating arm and camera. Which is interesting in itself. Mm. Somebody who hadn't played a console FPS before, or FPS on a controller probably, perhaps didn't have the same issues to those of us who had been 
hitting Halo and whatever else hard for the right. previous year or whatever. Scanning, we've kind of already mentioned the role it plays. Um, but again, uh, this uh, just just I think one of the reasons that it is so compelling is not just the information, but again, it's the audio. It just sounds yeah, really cool. It does. <laughs> it does. Um, and you know that it's adding to a log. And again, a modern UI element of the game that would change, I think, is the fact that there's no you haven't read this yet in your kind of big encyclopedia of Metroid information. If you go into your all your saved data, there's nothing to tell you what you've looked at and what you haven't in terms of stuff that you've recently scanned. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. um, it would have a little a glowing dot next to it now so you could see whether you'd read it already. Um, it's, it'd be interesting to know to go back to kind of even just the internet of the time to see if that was a thing that was common then and whether it's just something they missed. I don't remember thinking it was an issue when I played it first time, but now I'm like, I want to know what I've what I've. What what parts of the library I need, still need to read? Yeah. Well, I mentioned the map there, so let's let's talk more about it. Um, I've heard people say very kind and very unkind things about the three D map in Metroid Prime. I'm interested in in where you folks sit on it, Brian. Are you a fan, or do you find it a difficult one to use? Um, at the time the game came out, I thought it was was unbelievable. I, I right. was a huge fan. Uh, amazing to see like what door like the idea that i went by a door earlier and, and couldn't open it and then i look at the map and can see oh i don't need to remember where that door is because there's a red square on this uh -huh. map i can just go back to it yeah. at some point to see if i have the appropriate beam or, or missile or whatever i thought that was incredible i still think it's a pretty monumental achievement that they pulled that map off um i do think it's kind of the um it's kind of the what's the word i'm looking for it it, it the video game industry learned a lot of lessons from the Metroid Prime map, I think, about what to do and what not to do, because mm -hmm. it did things kind of both ways. Like, navigating the map vertically was very difficult and cumbersome. Right. I didn't yeah. think that at the time. Over the course of the last few weeks, I absolutely thought that. I was like, oh, Zooming man. in and out. Yeah. And when you've got layer layer over layer, uh, All of a sudden, it, it becomes flipping. a visual visual mess yeah i'm like why does this look weird and the reason is because i moved the camera all the way and i was looking at the map <laughs> from the bottom up and i'm like oh okay you know just like my my yeah. it just like the kind of like maybe even just a button to reorient the map you know what i mean to tilt it back to the yeah. yeah would be something like that they um they that they would include or, or hopefully improve on but i also think that like that's kind of the map design that um that a lot of games have pulled from for their own 3d maps and more specifically this is the one i wrote down like Games still have issues with the maps and oh, how yeah. to m make them work for them. Yeah. I thought of Control immediately, a game that I adore, mm -hmm. had intense map issues because it didn't have that 3D layer of that. It didn't allow you to really know where you had navigated and where you didn't. It, you would have almost been better off not having a map, let alone having one that was confusing in a way. And so I, I praise this map because it was amazing to me at the time, but... Anytime you read a complaint like, oh, the map's so fiddly and this, I'd never know where I am. And it's hard to tell. It's like all of those complaints, I can sit there and be like, yep, yep, uh-huh, yep. No, none of those complaints are necessarily wrong. But for me, as a starry-eyed 18-year-old or whatever, I just thought it was like the future, you know, playing the mm -hmm. future. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what about you? Uh, it, it, unlike most things in the game, it felt a little bit disconnected from being 
in the moment mm-hmm. with with sort yeah. of Samus. Now, if I imagine if I was looking at this in a VR, because mentally when I think back about this game, I might as well have been playing it in VR. That's yeah, genuinely how I feel. Yeah. Um, and it's like if you imagine uh being able to have a hold of two the, the two separate VR controllers and be able to actually like stretch, move, rotate that map and look in where you need to. That's kind of the effect that I think was the intention, but it never quite felt like it. Hmm. I think if they nailed it, it would be right. I think 3D maps historically are difficult. Yeah. You know, uh, I, yeah. I think in terms of my highlights, maybe the first really good 3D map I experienced was Doom 2016, oh, yeah. um, which yeah. was a lot later than this one. Yeah. And, you know, I've very recently gone through, uh, for the second time, I've mm. gone through uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Awful 3D map. Terrible 3D yeah. map. That's game. a great, great example. I didn't shame. think about that. When I played the game twice, too, you're absolutely right. Abysmal yeah. map. Yeah. The Doom, the Doom 2016 one does feel like the, the, the kind of ideal um, contemporary version of the Metroid Prime map. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I feel like ambitious for its time yeah. as a lot of this game. And, you know, I, I, and I feel like in every area of this game, they really swung for the fences. Unfortunately, that one felt like it. The, the map didn't feel. I mean, I'm not saying it's abysmal. It it's it could be better. Um, I appreciate what they tried, the ambition of it. It's just for me, a little bit clunky. Mm. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I, I I think overall I'm a fan and I enjoy it. I think when it gets frustrating is as much about uh, the 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 feeling of being lost in a game, which I find frustrating and stressful especially when i'm playing up to a playing to a deadline anyway and when you have to dive in and out of the map multiple times in quick succession i can find that quite annoying and then mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, looking at the 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 legend at the bottom of the screen on the wii version it's it it looks quite complicated in just in terms of how to move the map around and again i think some of that would actually probably be solved by a, a traditional controller but even then, you're still looking at using bumpers, shoulder uh, buttons, triggers, twin sticks, probably the D-pad as well. It's it's a very yeah, it is a very hard thing to get right. But it it kind of does and did feel to me more connected to Samus's experience than perhaps it did for you, Carl. Because it, uh, I'm going to bring in the hint system at this point because it it's it mm-hmm. seems to be connected. Um, so really, a lot of the game. And this also ties into overall level design. So this is a, it's a pretty large game, I would say, environmentally wise, not not in the open world sense of like just cause, but in terms of a game that you're going to actually visit and have a meaningful interaction in pretty much every single room across what is six, seven biomes, something like that. Um, is that about right? Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's six, if I remember right. correctly. So you certainly at first, I would say the game is it's not linear, but it's it's fairly clear where you need to go. Yeah. Now, the game has this hint system, which I still think is kind of genius. And I I wish something like it were used was used in more modern games. We talk so much on this podcast about. Especially when we cover older games, which don't tell you where to go or what to do at all. And sometimes, you know, some of some of our correspondents, panelists like that and they like that sort of retro experience of having to map the game out themselves or find their way around with absolutely no help, no signposting. 
then there's the the kind of something of of i think which which some of us consider a bit of a blight which is the modern way of doing things which is to constantly point where the player needs to go mm. which even some metroid games have kind of done that that we'll talk about later and for me this game is almost the perfect happy medium of that in that it occasionally tells you it comes up with a message on screen and says there's something you should investigate in this area and it doesn't even do it i i've never actually worked out what the smoke and mirrors going on here is is it just a timer does it actually look at the direction you're heading in broadly and give you hints based on if it thinks you're barking up the wrong tree the fact that i still don't know after all this time yeah. exactly how it works suggests yeah. that it's quite organic um, and for me, it broadly works because once you do know the area that you need to be in, that narrows down your options considerably. Because actually remembering every single door you've ever seen in this game or every right. hole or every blocked passage, it's just, well, I mean, maybe for some people it's doable. But for, for my my old brain that struggles with mapping environments at the best of times, it's it's a much needed help, but it doesn't make me feel like an idiot for just following the golden arrow right. the entire time. But you, it sounded like you were saying, Brian, that you think it's an imperfect system. I so yes, I do. But I but hearing your explanation, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. Um, the the reason I I find it imperfect um, is because when it tells you, hey, go check out something in this area, it highlights an area on the map that you have normally you haven't discovered yet it'll be like a blue room that you can kind of see like where your path stopped if you've collected where... the map you get the blue room right uh, yeah. yes yeah so so if you um but sometimes your pathing to that area doesn't only go through that zone sometimes mm. you have to go into like i specifically one i remember when you're in um oh the first area talon uh that's the name of the planet I can't remember. uh yeah and then and then you have, but you have to go to the Magmore Caverns to circumvent to get back around this area. It doesn't necessarily let you know that. And I, I found mm. myself a couple times during this game, like literally beating my head against a wall and being like, the place I need to go is right here. I know it's right here. And it didn't give me enough kind of breadcrumbs, or maybe it was my failure of not seeing the breadcrumbs um, of how I was supposed to navigate my way to that area. Mm. Um, However, what I did find is that those breadcrumbs would eventually come in the way of either enemies respawning or you come into a room and all of a sudden there's a space pirate there looting yeah. a corpse when there wasn't one before. You'd be like, okay, something new. You know, I'm yeah. going to go through this area. The The good news about it, the thing that I like about it is that it always seemed to come the right hint or the right uh, notification seemed to come right when I was at that frustration tipping tipping point. Right. Yeah. And that I don't know. Like you said, the smoke and mirror. I don't know how they do that officially. No. But it's just about where I'm I'm just about to pull out my phone and be like, oh, I guess I'll look at a guide. And all of a sudden there's that blink, mm. you know, it's like, OK, mm -hmm. all right. You know, and then yeah. It, yeah. it does time Definitely that Definitely well. happened to me. Yeah, yeah. On the scanning, Mr. Ixalite from our forum said, like Super Metroid Prime instantly offers up tantalizing exploration. The joy of cracking open a new pathway recreated perfectly. The game also has atmosphere to spare. And though I'm normally not that interested in environmental storytelling, Prime had me obsessively scanning every last thing I came across. And yes, I did forget to scan at least one of the collectibles before I picked them up, of course, <laughs> and the bosses. Yeah, it always feels like a real, um, a bit of a, a taunt, doesn't it, to 
when you you know you get a, a cut scene and an introduction to a screen shaking boss and you go excuse me just gonna just gonna get my scanner yeah. out could you could you hold still real <laughs> quick i'm just gonna get a quick picture all yeah. right good <laughs> and they actually often they're, they're scanning the bosses is normally at least useful in some cases essential because they actually tells you what weapons mm-hmm. will work and what won't Matt L from our forum says, prior to Prime, I avoided Metroidvania-based games because of my experience trying to play the original Metroid on my NES around the age of eight or so. I was utterly lost and hated that feeling of confusion, having been more accustomed to the Marios and Mega Mans of the world, all of which had a clear start and a clear goal. It wasn't until much later in my mid-twenties and a local game store going out of business and clearing out stock, including Metroid Prime for $5.00, that I was willing to give the genre a fresh go. Upon starting up Metroid Prime, I connected to it almost instantly. I was older and more patient and more able to deal with the uncomfortable feeling of being lost and trying to figure out an exit. I see this in myself still in real-world situations, such as going on vacation to new places. These days I find a strange sort of pleasure from trying to learn where things are and how to reach them, and have almost no inclination to resort to a map unless absolutely necessary. The journey is the destination, man. <laughs> Rager is a fan of the 3D map. Rager says, How games still struggle with 3D maps 20 years later is beyond me. They absolutely nailed it. And uh, also on the uh, navigation and map and related topics, No More Spiros says the best decision made in Metroid Prime was to allow the option for the game to outright tell you where something of note is located. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but as someone who struggles with first-person navigation, it would have been nearly impossible for me to have beaten the game without it. It's subtle enough that it doesn't outright say the means of getting there, while still ensuring that players like me aren't stuck doing some fruitless task under the assumption that it would lead to progress. If memory serves, this isn't utilised in the end game Find the MacGuffins task, which is both a positive and negative aspect. On the one hand, it serves as encouragement to pay attention to your surroundings and look for suspicious areas where you may not have had the ability to do so beforehand, which is part of the Metroid experience as a whole. But on the other hand, well, if you're me, you just end up getting even more lost than before. I'm not alone and neither are you. No more Spiros. (laughs) A, A special shout out to that room where you uh it's recently after you've got the x-ray visor and you come out in a little hole somewhere possibly as the morph ball and you're in a or oh no it's the room in which you get the x-ray visor isn't it um and you collect the x-ray visor and you're in this tiny little dome and then uh you flip on the visor and you realize that you're in a giant room and you have to blow up the walls (laughs) to get back out stuff like that was really cool Working our way through the items and upgrades, um, we've kind of you know, touched upon them as we've gone. Um, there are what four types of beam and a couple of yep. uh, inv- uh, optional upgrades, such as the ice spreader. Um, the last one you get is the well, you get the plasma beam, and then is the flamethrower optional? Can't remember. Is that is that an optional upgrade or is that? Um, no, I don't think so. I th- no, I think mm. you have to get that. Um, okay. Obviously, I'm super confident. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but yeah, uh, you you know you get your your suit upgrades. Um, the suit changes color. You get some cutscenes as as that happens. 
there's a, I guess, um, some sort of standout moments for me getting the the gravity suit after yeah. the. So there's a whole section yeah. where you explore a, a, a underwater area, and it's quite imposing and oppressive and a little bit scary. Even though I should say the game overall, until some of the later bosses, is pretty easy, like gentle difficulty yeah. wise. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's relatively hard to die as long as you found a few energy tank upgrades along your way. The enemies don't do huge amounts of damage. Even if you throw yourself into lava or poison, you can normally get yourself out without taking a crazy amount of damage. I have had a couple of lengthy sessions where later in the game they they spread the save rooms out a bit more and you can end up going through multiple rooms with space pirates and Chozo ghosts and all that kind of thing. And before you know it, there's those elite pirates as well, which are like big yeah. tyranty things. Before you know it, you're like, oh, actually, I'm quite away from the last save room I saw, and I've now only got one energy tank left. And you're hoping to to find the next one, but but overall, um, yeah. What what the anything to be said about the different? Oh, uh, anyone? Yeah, I know you love the 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 morph ball, Brian. So yeah. I guess you also enjoy the upgrades to that, the magnet. Um, yeah, Spider Sp Ball, Spider and then yeah. uh, the Boost Ball. Yeah. I so like with all these games, um, I'm always more excited about the locomotion based upgrades in both uh -huh. um, both uh, Metroid and Castlevania games. Like your double jumps, your fast yeah. runs, do what you will, or or um, you know uh, the gravity suit in this one, or in, in like Symphony of the Night, or, or Bloodstained, the ability to flip upside down, and go to the ceiling, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I find fun. Anything that gives me that option to explore a little bit more. I mean. The, I mean, one of the first rooms you walk into and, and the overworld is essentially a giant half pipe they set up for your morph that's ball. It. And I was yeah. like, I can't wait to do that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like that's that those are the ones I'm a little more interested in. I find like the beam stuff um, a little perplexing in the sense that, like, I understand why it's there. It's another key for a door, right? You know, you get a different beam, you get a different yeah. door, different types of enemies, obviously ice beam against fire enemies and so on and so forth. Um, but they didn't really change the way i played the game that much i would i would always kind of no. default to my regular beam the warp beam's really cool um but and i think visually it's it's really neat um but yeah i just it it didn't i guess combat in general and i know we're talking about it a little bit isn't isn't what i'm here for here as much as the exploration yeah. so so i was definitely all about that though the the physics on the boost ball and some of the things like that are, are really fun and then once you get kind of fully kitted out and you can get around and 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 kind of get anywhere you want to. That's when that's when the game like really feels free. You know, like you can walk into any room and just know you're going to be able to spider ball up this track and then double jump over here and do all the stuff like mm. that. That's what I look forward to the most. Yeah, spinning around uh, some of the the like the the spiral tracks and those. There's yeah. that there's that room that's all magnet tracks all around the walls, and if yeah. you fall down, you have to kind of restart the whole thing. Um. Yeah, I mean that 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 speaks to we we haven't sort of specifically talked about the the kind of the level design and actually how your how many environmental puzzles there are in this game and a few kind of not not really I don't know if you call them cerebral puzzles but things that you need to work out at least or work through anyway uh, like aligning columns or yeah. Um, there's, there's, finding some hidden scan uh, glyphs right. you've got to you know get them all to open the next Powering door or what have up. you. Yeah. 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 Any uh any favorite upgrades, Carl? I it, from from a playing perspective, uh it's not the most exciting, but 
obviously when you get uh, the gravity to be able to do the second underwater section yeah. um without it being an underwater section yeah, yeah. which is an underwater section in a game that again <laughs> it's never it never seems to be that great <laughs> uh, so by the second time you get it obviously you can just explore more naturally the the down ship um which i love but it's it, it's got to be the mothball, right? Mm. Like anything, to, any, it, it's it looks cool. It feels. It's cool. It's just it's cool. Yeah, it's just one of the uh, Metroid mothball is just a cool thing. So actually being able to do it and it does highlight the craft and design of the worlds. And I, I mean, we're not getting to upside down castle levels <laughs> of genius from uh, you know Symphony of the Night, for example. But it definitely the ability and and the piercing. Which I think that's a, probably a Metroid staple, isn't it? Right, is mm. the pacing between the upgrades yeah. um, for unlocking the world do marry over very well to the three D world that was created for Prime? Yeah. So um, I wonder, the way that it delivers out morph ball stuff for me is, right. is great. Yeah, I wonder how much uh, that was. You know, where the the collaboration between the existing Nintendo yeah. designers and and the Retro Studios kind of technical people kind of um, that's where where it does feel like it was a a happy marriage um but yeah I, I even had the thing where so we, what we haven't mentioned is one of the audio cues in this game is a, is a hint as to where things are which is a again maybe some metroid purists would balk at this idea because you go back and play metroid the first three now and you find your stuff by just trying everything by bombing walls <laughs> by trying to go through things that look solid this this game has an audio effect which actually alerts you to the fact that there might be something worth exploring in the area but again i think it's it's really well done to the point that oftentimes it's not obvious exactly where it is or how you get to it you just know at least that there's something in the room that's worth playing for you don't always even get to it from the room that you're in sometimes you have to re-enter the room from a different place and stuff mm -hmm. like that so so that stuff i think is great and i was i was happy to because you know i've I've played a lot of games and I've lived quite a long time and some some things drop out of my memory but there was one missile power up in this game that I just remembered there's a uh, one of the 2D side on multiple sections where you have to use the boost ball and your your it's a it looks like an impossibly high jump but you just have to keep boosting and keep boosting and to, and get the momentum exactly right and release the boost at exactly the right second and then you can get on the top of this column and then bomb your way into it and there's a hidden there's a hidden item in there and um it's almost like it was such a such a cool puzzle design that it it kind of glued itself into my into my mm -hmm. consciousness for 20 years it's it's one of those games there um with the upgrades and the exploration kind of you're describing leon it has that feeling like like the way that Mario Odyssey made me feel like is that like if there if there was a way to get on top of something and a way to get behind something, the game was going to reward me for it somehow. Right. You know what I mean? There's there was always going to be something, five extra missiles or, you know, mm. uh, maybe an energy tank, some some bigger war. But some sometimes it would just be like a shortcut to another room or, or just like little things. But just making you always want to poke at the corners because, you know, there's going to be something somewhere it's really good at that. Sean S. Thomas says, incredible puzzles via and traversal via the morph ball. The way that mechanic is integrated into the game is truly staggering to me. Moby Games 
points out that while many of Samus' signature moves are present in Metroid Prime, the infamous screw attack is strangely missing. Fans speculate that this is due to difficulties meshing it with the first-person perspective of the game. The screw attack does appear in Metroid Prime 2 Echoes, however. So we'll see. Discuss if it works when we get to it. The original North American release of the game, as I was saying earlier, had some glitches in gameplay that allowed for sequence breaking. Most of these bugs were fixed in the Japanese version, which was released a little later. These two versions also had some plot inconsistencies. Pirate data could be scanned that detailed how the space pirates initially encountered and caught the Metroid Prime in a cavern implied to be inside the meteor. It was studied and experimented upon explaining its various abilities and metamorphoses in the finale. It didn't explain, however, how the pirates actually got into the meteor in the first place and how the creature eventually got back inside, since the pirates also describe how the impact crater was completely sealed off and inaccessible to them. The European version of the game included all the bug fixes from the Japanese version and featured rewritten pirate data that explained that the pirates had merely detected Metroid Prime growing inside the crater and were desperately but unsuccessfully trying to find the Chozo artifacts in order to break the seal and get to the creature. This rewritten narrative was subsequently used for all regional versions of Metroid Prime in the Metroid Prime Trilogy collection and is now considered canon. Brian, your original copy is non-canon. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like I'm a sham. I'm a fraud. <laughs> um, I, 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 should I show myself out? Should I, it disrespectfully? I'm going to let you off because it doesn't have the terrible narration. Okay, the, good. Uh, the okay. So. Balances out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, combat and enemies. Um, this was the area that I think the game always took some knocks for, which I think is partly because some people misunderstood what a Metroid game was, but partly also because I think it is probably where, for me, the game is the weakest. Uh, the combat is pretty perfunctory. The enemy AI is not especially interesting. But the worst thing for me about it, and, and I remember this being a disappointment then and is still a disappointment now, is the real lack of connection feeling between your weapons and the enemies. There's just a kind of red glow that when you hit something, there's very little response. There's no ragdolling. There's, there's no, when, when you kill them, they sometimes fly up in the air or fall off something and that's fun. But overall, this is, um, I think this is the area that they kind of didn't spend as much time kind of perfecting as they did so many of the other areas. Am I, am I barking up the wrong tree? No, I think that's completely fair. It's it harks back to the old laser fighting, doesn't it? When you used to get like lasers in in first person games that never quite landed. I think a lot of the mm. uh, Star Wars games of that era had the same yeah. issue lack when you impact. used to blast a yeah. You just don't get that punch. Um, you don't get that meaty sound. You know, we we, we it as I said, the sound design is very very good in this mm -hmm. game. Does but help. There is. There is something to be said for the punch and the bang of yeah. traditional ballistics, um, yeah. ballistics in in selling the impact of a weapon yeah. um, and the natural thud that comes from that impact um, of the round that is never really there whenever you've got lasers and, and and science fiction weapons. You're right; it is perfunctory. It's not. It's it's not the primary consideration for a Metroid game. Um, and this, I mean, you know, I've mentioned that that comparison to Halo probably too many times already on this issue, but that's kind of where my mindset was coming in. Yeah, Halo is very much about the combat. It's something that's yeah. still it's right. Well, I mean, it's, it's combat evolved, Carl. Yeah, that's exactly. A, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that 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 is a, a kind of at the 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 height of 
combat yeah. in in a science fiction space in a video game. This is many tiers below that, but it's not competing on that front. It's about that exploration. No. It's about that movement. It's about that locomotion. It's about the puzzles all before you even get to the combat. Yeah. So yes, the combat is not amazing. Don't go in with the mindset that it's going to be amazing. It's not. It's part of the process of the game. It's it's an element of many. Yeah, I think back to the original Metroid and how with g- generic enemies, when the when the when your power beam would hit an enemy, they would actually frame stop the animation. So mm. like as like the mm. enemies would fall from the ceiling, you'd hit them, and you could you. That's how they signified impact, right? Is that mm-hmm. the enemies literally stop, 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 stop? And it felt like you were you know hitting hitting the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about this game is that a lot of the animations and and a lot of the the habits of the creatures that you're fighting um, are very sophisticated and fluid. Like the way the space pirates move and and kind of shift back and forth, it's all very good looking. But your your weapons, which are doing damage to them, and you can tell because they eventually die, it doesn't ever <laughs> yeah. seem to stop them from those beautiful no. animations in motion, you know? So you'd never get the sense that you're really doing anything to them until mm. the final gasp comes and they fall yeah. to the ground or whatever. Yeah. Um, Certainly which I the think, Chozo ghosts are like that. They, yeah. they and, and they stop, and it's, it's frustrating because they stop you. They they knock you out of your animation yeah. with, their, with one of their attacks. I think some of them you can sort of stun lock to an extent with the wave gun maybe, but... Oh, yeah, maybe. I'm. But I think mostly you're right, yeah. It's, um, yeah, but like, like Carl said, and this is maybe me... Uh, being a little bit bring my own experiences too much, but like th- the combat is is not why I'm here to begin with. No, now that's me. But if you're looking at from an outsider's perspective coming into it, like like it's it's a big part of the game. I mean, you're shooting stuff every room you're in for yeah. sure. Um, yeah. so it's not you can't just write it off as like oh well the combat's bad and I'm not there for it. Like no, I don't think it's bad. I think it's serviceable. I think the weapons can be yeah. interesting, but maybe the actual encounters don't vary enough or yeah. aren't at least don't have any emergent gameplay opportunities. Like they don't really use the environment. You, it's not like you're getting on top, like using elevation to your advantage. And that you're basically just blasting away at something until it disappears. And, um, yeah. and yeah, that's probably where the game is. It's weakest for me. Yeah. If you'd come to it expecting or having thought this was going to be something like a halo or whatever, you would be disappointed in that regard. And in fact, here we have granny, 7989 from the forum who says I'd always been aware of the Metroid franchise but had never actually played any of the games I owned a copy of Metroid Prime for over 10 years but I only decided to play it in November 2021 I came away feeling lukewarm I did enjoy the ex- the exploration of Talon 4 especially scanning the environment to piece together what happened during the events that led up to Samus arrival I enjoyed the fact that gaining new powers and abilities made the backtracking quicker and easier as it allowed Samus to bypass the original platforming methods used when initially encountering them. However, I didn't find the combat to be particularly fun. I'm not sure if I was too used to the modern twin-stick control setup that the majority of console shooters used or that I wasn't wasn't interacting with the combat properly. I appreciated that the game used a lock-on mechanic that kept the enemy centered on screen and allowed the player to circle strafe around them due to the GameCube controller having one analog stick, but I didn't find the combat itself very engaging compared to other console shooters. Most enemies went down with a little issue, but there were some encounters that felt like the enemies were damaged sponges, the Chozo ghosts come to mind. 
While I have no problem with respawning enemies in Metroidvania type games, it did get a little frustrating when I cleared out a room of tough enemies, moved on to the next room, realised I'm going the wrong way and re-entered the previous room and find that the tough enemies I defeated have now respawned. I can see why this game is loved by so many but it didn't click with me. Maybe I would have enjoyed it more if I'd played it around the time of its release. And Rager similarly says, fighting the Chozo ghosts got real old real fast. (laughs) (laughs) So the bosses, uh, whereas I think it's fair to say in the previous Metroids that we've already covered, the the room-to-room baddies were normally a means to an end for the most part. Either you kill them to uh, get health and missiles, which is very much the case in this as well. Or you sometimes freeze them and use them as platforms or whatever else. Sometimes they're just, yeah, as in this game, something to be dispatched and and moved quickly past. But even in the previous games, especially Super Metroid, the bosses were kind of showpieces. Um, Gerard from the forum says the bosses often felt satisfyingly puzzly in a Zelda sort of way. Uh, Brian, you said earlier you, you had something to say about bosses. Yeah, I um I was actually really surprised it's because it's been a number of playthroughs, but I haven't played through in a couple of years. I I found the bosses to be pretty dreadful, actually. Um, ah. maybe not, <clears throat> maybe not like like experience ruining bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the 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 plant boss is fine. I, I I think that I think that the Metroid Prime fight is a little too long, but like oh, yeah, if there's 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 some interesting stuff there going in the morph ball to get in the track so you don't get there switching up the beams based on the color you know all that stuff but mm. the end the the x-ray parts at the end were i thought were pretty bad um yeah. but the the one that sticks out to me is the the stone is it talus is that the name uh, no that might be from breath of the wild um, the rolling stone monster yeah yeah that mm-hmm. that giant rock monster you're essentially just taking this rock monster apart piece by piece rock by rock and <laughs> some of the shots you have to get on these rocks are really precise you use your uh one of your visor screens to, to know like like one of the rocks is glowing red so you know that's the one you got to go after this time yeah. it blows up then you gotta it turns into like a blue crystal then you gotta blow away and that fight was really within 30 seconds i knew exactly <laughs> what i had to do yeah. and that was just 15 minutes of chipping away and i felt like i was getting hurt in ways that I didn't really know how or could avoid emotionally. Or? <laughs> yes, no. I was getting, I was getting very, <laughs> I was getting very hurt. I felt abandoned. Um, no one was listening to me. No, um, they. I, I was getting damaged in a way that that I just didn't know where it was coming from. Um, mm. And I found myself like just getting more and more frustrated because I was just like, okay, what? What's the next rock? It could at least be a big one this time, so I don't have to pinpoint these shots around. I just. Yeah. It really did almost, you know, kind of bring me to a stop. And it's probably the one aspect of this game that that now, upon most recent playthrough, I I don't think holds up well almost at all. Um, mm-hmm. Probably easily easily my my most significant negative uh, complaint mm-hmm. about the game. Okay, Carl, are you in the same boat? Uh, I'm probably not as critical. Um, I will categorically say I think the bosses in this are better than the bosses that are in Halo games. Um, <laughs> Right, <laughs> and I and I believe there's but some. That's not a particularly high bar. I have read there are even greater frustrations in Echoes uh, in Metro Prime Two Echoes than there are in this game. But uh, we'll come to that. Sorry, Carl, carry on. Yeah, yeah, it's nothing to write home about. I think, uh, like the combat, it's not one of the peaks of the games. Mm. Um, there's potentially an argument that it 
it could be the trough of the game. It could actually the bosses could be the worst part of the game. For me, I've I've played so many games with so many bad bosses. It all kind of blurs together, mm. and it doesn't really taint my experience of the overall product for something that peaks in yeah. so many other areas. Right, it mean. could be could be better. only if it was a, if more of them were actual like difficulty cliffs. And this is, yeah, this is where where my memory of the game was. I don't know if it was tainted slightly, but one of my strongest memories of the game was having a lot of attempts at Meta Ridley before before beating Meta Ridley. And then a lot of people told me that the final boss, Metroid Prime, was even worse. But actually, I did that one, I think, on my second go. But Meta Ridley, God almighty, yeah. is actually the, the element I've not been looking forward to coming back to um and I do, I do want to carry on through this this version of the game on this playthrough and finish it but I'll be interested to see if I cuz weirdly even though I'm obviously 20 years older and you know my hand eye coordination and reaction should be fading I do find actually on on some games I think just pure experience and I don't know knowledge or zen like calmness um something <laughs> that helped me uh, help me actually do better at some older games than 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 I did, but I'm wondering mm. if actually maybe this one will be a a step too far. We shall see, uh, or maybe I just didn't have enough energy tanks. I don't know. That that might be part of it too, because when I was playing through uh, for this show, I wanted I wanted to finish before the show, and I, I did maybe curb some exploration later on yeah. that might have led to that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. One one thing I will say, and I know this is not the Metroid Dread show, um, but Metroid Dread has big boss battles and, and similar to this game, like all Metroid mm. games do. But the thing that that game has is it has a very deliberate and specific combat mechanic for each one. Mm. And I think that while those fights can be long and frustrating and difficult, um, it always feels more like it. I I did something wrong if I lost those boss fights. You know, right. when in this game, all it really felt like I was just kind of outlasting or out healthing a boss yeah it wasn't by yeah. the by five minutes into the fight it wasn't really about skill anymore as much as it was about do i have the patience and kind of can i stay focused for long enough to just you know nail these shots and get through it um, that's quite traditional to the series to up to this point as well uh, yeah uh, and and i you know i speak as somebody who hasn't aced the original metroid at all in the way that uh, our friend ben has but even he i think takes some damage on that final you know, mid '80s style boss because it's it's just it's almost impossible not to take damage. So it does become a uh, a matter of healthing it out, as you say. Hmm. Uh, well, there's only yeah, there's ten in the game, six major ones and four sub bosses. Um, I think all the sub bosses are pretty uh, pretty straightforward. But yes, it is it is odd that a game. It's one of those games that I think feels pretty gentle difficulty wise up until this kind of last little rush which is almost as i say it's after this section where you have to go off and find all these MacGuffins to let you into the final area as well um and the collecting of the of the the statue pieces or whatever it is feels a bit more like a victory lap because you're you've got all your abilities by this point and and you're just going around harvesting extras as well as you go so that's i'm cool with that um it doesn't it doesn't feel to me like the the final bits of the triforce in wind waker which right. was as we know was kind of rushed and whatever it, it doesn't feel like that it feels like a a deliberate way of getting you to 
spend some time using all your abilities and topping up your topping up your capabilities as well. Mr. Ixalite says, again, like Super Metroid, I feel the combat is where the game falters a bit to a greater extent here. Normal enemies are manageable, but I found bosses frustrating as they felt more tailored to fighting in third person than first person. It's also possible that I'm just unskilled as my experience with FPS is, is very limited. But sadly, my predominant memory of Metroid Prime is of fighting the rock boss and dodging its attacks by turning into the morph ball and madly rolling away in a random direction, transforming and furiously scrambling to relocate the boss. It felt disorienting and inelegant and not at all like being a cool bounty hunter. For the same reason, I never actually managed to beat the game's final boss. However, I didn't feel like the game provided much reason for why I had to fight that boss in the first place. Since I'd defeated Ridley and halted the Space Pirate's excavation efforts, I felt content to let Samus call it a day. <laughs> so the how long to beat for the game has it uh, at main story of 14 hours with sides 15 and a half. That seems odd because there's loads of side stuff you can do. <laughs> uh, completionist 18 and a half hours. Yeah, maybe to do everything. I, I think that's as usual with those because they tend to be submitted by people who know the game well. I think you can add on some time for, for most people, especially if you're a slow player like me. However, the uh, the normal difficulty world record speed run is by a Canadian player called T3. And uh, it, it has a total real time of one hour and six minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, the in-game clock is 45 minutes. And that was achieved just one year ago. And uh, the US GameCube version is the one to do that on because that's the one that they never patched because <laughs> it's glitched. The record for the Japanese version is uh, one hour and 38 minutes odd. So get cracking. <laughs> Jobo Bonobo says there is so much to say about this revolutionary title, whether it's its beautiful art direction, soundtrack dripping with atmosphere or diverse pool of abilities and visors to navigate the world. Samus' debut into 3D has been just as impactful as that of Mario and Link and like those two shows the incredible possibilities the third dimension can bring to video games. With Prime, I can now see what it is about Metroid that so many love. Yeah, and I, th I think that's that's fair, even though this was the generation after the N64, where as somebody who had grown up and loved 2D games and still does, I was concerned about a lot of these games going into 3D. It was exciting, but it was also worrying. I'm sure you probably both felt the same way to some extent. Maybe, I, maybe because I was that bit older, I was a bit more kind of wedded to the past. But the yeah. fact that Nintendo yeah. did so much with with that worked with Super Mario 64 and Legend of Zelda um, to see Metroid also working was exciting for the future of gaming. Yeah, it was it kind of a, um, this is a, just a <laughs> an overused phrase, but a magical time, but mm -hmm. it really was um, because there was so much, um, especially from a, a young person's perspective, like, like I was always forced with in this time, particularly leading to the N64 of like, trying to convince my parents why this is better, right? <laughs> so, like, my parents would be like, well, you already have a Nintendo and a Super Nintendo. There's no way yeah. you're buying a Nintendo 64. And but, I've told this story on the pocket. I take my dad to, a, at the time, it was an electronics boutique, 
and I go in there and I put him on the kiosk of Super Mario 64 and the story that I've told multiple times. He comes home from the mall and goes to my mom's like, oh, we got to get this for him. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, get that. Like, the, it, there's something to be said for that. And and it was kind of this interesting new thing. But then you started seeing examples, especially in the GameCube era, with your Star Fox adventures, with your um, some of the Rayman games, um, mm-hmm. like some of these uh, Sonic, the Hedgehog, of course, that the switch from 2D to 3D wasn't this amazing quality boost thing that it could be in you started to get it like, was hints not that, guaranteed <laughs> yeah it's, yeah it's not guaranteed to be good because you're in a 3d space and no um and so yeah so so feeling metroid nail that was kind of um it was uh, it was a, a bit of a relief because you were starting to wonder like maybe you know and and then of course it's amazing how it all goes because then 10 years beyond from that you start seeing the absolute like like they're re- they're coming out with new 2D Zelda games and 2D Metro games. Everybody's like, oh, thank God, we're going. You know, like it, it's how cyclical that all goes. It's 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 really interesting piece, uh, time period should I say in video game history to watch this transition to 3D and see what works, what doesn't, and then how things have evolved from there. And to not get too far ahead into the our summaries on the game is that there are ideas and exploration and world building design ideas from metroid prime that informed how 3d adventure games were made from this point on and it's so cool to go back to it now and see like oh i've seen that in other games oh i i think the resident evil 2 remake pulled this from here and that you know like you could see where things are borrowing from these ideas that are now 20 years old it's it's very exciting and and energizing to kind of revisit and look at that stuff i think the leap into 3d was it really was an exciting time because you were seeing the first foray into the space for so many franchises. But whilst I was, you know, very excited and especially given the prolonged media coverage that we had to wait for our N64s, but we'd already kind of seen what was capable with, you know, Mario and Pilot Wings, and um, and then we obviously had great F Zero examples that came across. Um, I would be lying if I said I didn't have huge concern for Metroid after seeing what happened with Castlevania. Mm, right. Um, and, you know, feeling like the, the the core soul of what makes a Castlevania game a Castlevania game felt like it was missing from its 3D version in Castlevania 64. Um, and in my uh, uh, and still my layman's opinion of those games is that the metroid games are a little bit more complex because of the mechanics around things like the morph ball and the mm. upgrade paths um and the routing uh, being different from castlevania and thinking well if castlevania can't make it metroid's going to have a really mm. hard time right yeah um and yet i think just seeing those reviews like i said it was the only thing that put me off was the controller and the fact that it was um you know one stick navigation with a lock on uh is not what i wanted um which naive and stupid maybe looking back but it did give me more um positivity i think around the wii release uh but seeing those reviews was a bit of a relief because I, I there was there was an element of concern there, and I, I I'm I'm saying this as not the biggest Metroid fan, as not the biggest Castlevania fan, 
historically from all the games across those franchises, uh, both of which you can listen to on Kane and Rinse. <laughs> um, but, the, the, but the move towards 3D was exciting and it made me want to dip into more franchises as a result uh, of the move to 3D. Uh, but yeah, Castlevania was a little bit of a concern that not everything is going to move wonderfully into 3D planes as we had seen with uh, the uh, the games I, I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, uh, big relief, I think, was probably my, my number one emotion when I saw the real positive reviews for Metroid Prime. Fusion, Fusion, after finishing Metroid Fusion on the GBA and linking it up to the GameCube via the old purple lead, uh, you could get a new suit in this game and you could also play the original Metroid on the GameCube, which was a nice bonus spending 80 quid or whatever on the two games uh <laughs> magnus berg from our patreon says i struggle to come up with the words that have not already been said a thousand times over about this game having recently played it twice with widescreen high res and twin stick control mods i can confidently say it's high time that the long rumored switch version comes out so people who don't feel like tinkering with emulators can get to experience this game in its prime the Phantom Switch remaster has been rumbling about for a couple of years, maybe more. Yeah. Uh, the last article I found on Eurogamer was from the 27th of June, less than three months ago. No, about three months ago. There may Actually, there has been rumbling since then because there was a Nintendo Direct and people said, this time it's going to drop. Yeah. And it, and it didn't. According to the Metroid Wiki, persistent rumours in 2021 and 2022 have suggested that a remaster is in the works for Switch in an episode of Giant Bomb's Game Mess Mornings show. In uh, June 27th, 2022, journalist Jeff Grubb claimed to have been told that a port of Prime, which he titled Metroid Prime Remastered, was scheduled for release in November 2022. This would coincide with the game's 20th anniversary. Grubb also indicated that ports of Echoes and Corruption with less extensive revisions would be released later on. As of the time of recording, that's the 1st of October, there has been no official confirmation of a remaster from Nintendo. So, uh, are we expecting a, a November sudden whoop-de-drop? I, I honestly... I, I think there will be. I, I hope so. Um, I, I, hope I so genuinely think there will be. Especially the way that they handled the Mario 25th mm -hmm. anniversary, right? Like, certain things we knew oh, about yeah. in advance, certain things dropped on incredibly short notice. It wouldn't... It would be very Nintendo-like to just drop something last minute and not build up the hype something probably deserves um it definitely warrants it and whilst there's been official uh quote-unquote official persistent rumors i mean if there's any such thing yeah. um i know myself and others that i speak with immediately spoke about a, a switch version of it as soon as the switch and the joy cons and the fact that yeah. you know it they were so similar to the Wii mm -hmm. was announced like so there's been a lot of talk from people desiring it for a long time right. it is the 20th anniversary of it it's the ideal device for it like i mean everything's lined up i mean surely nintendo can't mess this one up i wonder how much they'll charge for it that's a that's yeah, a that's the thing I, I just don't be cheaper than the wii version maybe <laughs> I, it's become so hard to predict nintendo um i mean considering that we're now but we're five years past the last core Mario and Zelda release. We have a date and title now for the next Zelda, which it might miss again because 
we had mm-hmm. a we had a, t- a date and title for Breath of the Wild that it got delayed from. It just doesn't seem like mm-hmm. they have any pressure to really do anything because they are just counting Rolling their in Splatoon, Splatoon money. money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're count they're they're literally counting their money and then you know everyone's like what well what's their big holiday release and I I think and again I I it's don't know out. for sure obviously but they're like who needs a holiday release oh I'm you Pokemon know, like, obviously. Right. We'll we'll just I mean they're they're gonna have stuff you got Bayonetta coming out but these are all kind of for a company as profitable as they are right now in this market like a Metroid Prime Remaster is probably a very niche release in their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Wu King Long from the forum says Metroid Prime is a game I like but I don't love. I see why it's lauded so highly by many, but also feel it's a title I would have enjoyed much more had I experienced it contemporaneously. Some areas still look great even today, others not so much. Combat feels good but not great to me and the puzzles range from very clever to tedious at times. I understand why the MacGuffin hunt at the final stages of the experience exists but would honestly enjoy the game more without it given current time constraints on my gaming. Lukewarm feelings from present day me aside, when I remind myself that this title is nearly 20 years old, I am genuinely impressed and don't regret taking the time to play it. It's even more impressive when you consider the story of the title's development. If you have the patience, I do think this is a title worth your time. Sean Thomas is more positive, saying Metroid Prime is a powerhouse of a game. It combines everything Nintendo does best. It gave me totally unrealistic expectations of anything with the word Retro Studios Mm. on it. I long for an update on 4, and I hope in its 20th anniversary year that soon more people will get to experience what a brilliant experience it is. And finally, we have Aaron Prime uh, from our Patreon. Uh, So, I mean, I couldn't not, could I? It has now been over a decade since I played this game, and I have been patiently anticipating a game that will finally usurp it as my favourite. God willing, someday I will play a game that surpasses Metroid Prime. Who knows, maybe Retro Studios will create a new miracle, and Metroid Prime 4 will exceed my wildest expectations. Until then... Metroid Prime shall keep its throne. If I could single out a single aspect of this game that makes it my favourite, it would be its combination of pacing and level design mise-en-scene. The way the game modulates the design of each room and enemy encounter is a work of art unto itself. Landing on Talon 4, entering the Space Pirate's lab, diving into the sunken ship, seeing the impact crater as you descend on an elevator, and of course, my favourite moment in this game, and quite possibly in any game, is entering Fendrana Drifts. That's the, the the thing that often you'd often see people reminiscing about is uh, is the snow area and the music. We've got a few yeah. three word reviews. Follow us on social media at Kane and Rince if you want. Wu King Long says Chozo Ghosts Bad. Game Game Show says that opening theme. Dan Ormisher says Super good memories. Chris Coletti says, must scan everything. Nick Tendo, primetime classic. And Porg of Prophecy says, where's Switchport? Yeah. All right. Uh, brief summaries and recommendations. Uh, we're all going to recommend the version that isn't out yet, aren't we? Let's start with... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's start with Brian. Yeah, I, um, I, I think it, it was interesting because... Um, all three of us had very similar opinions on this game, talking about it through and, and didn't differ very much. And so I was thinking about the summary over the course of the last few minutes. And 
I wasn't sure what I could say that would change <clears throat> anything about uh, what I've already said in, in the issue. I think it's a fantastic game. I think it holds up incredibly well from a um, from a gameplay and visual perspective. Uh, visuals, really, I'm thinking this was a GameCube game and, and how it still looks and how you can play it on the Wii and then the Wii U if the shop is still up at the time. Um, it, it's It's an impressive feat to create a game that can have that lasting impression and still feel good to play after that many years. It's a total recommend for me. I think... The combat and stuff that we talked about, I, I do think it is lacking. I think it's something that definitely is the least impressive part of what is a incredibly, <clears throat> excuse me, an incredibly impressive experience. Um, the one thing I was doing though, and I, I've said this a couple times before, when we're recording episodes of Kane and Rinse, um, I play the official soundtrack of the game in my headphones on the background, a very low volume. And what I found myself doing throughout this recording is about every 10 minutes or so I'd go in and I'd just nudge that volume up just a little bit and then <laughs> nudge it up just a little bit more. And then by the end of this episode, I was just thinking like, man, this this soundtrack is just, it's it, it, it reminds me of everything I love about the game. It's, it's varied, it's nuanced, it's hyper-detailed and incredibly, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it, you, you can tell it, it, it has a specific intent. You can see the areas in your mind when you hear that music and... That just reminded me of all the things I love about this game. This game has detail and direction in a way that a lot of games, up to and including games that are made in 2022, just do not have. And Mm -hmm. after watching the videos and learning a lot more about it leading up to the show, it's kind of a miracle it even came out that it did and how the game got from the point that it was to the finished product and then to have something that was this profound and uh, refreshing and cool and fun to play and um yeah even though i played it through four or five times uh, that switch version comes out in november yeah I- i'll be i'll be putting aside a lot of other things to get back in and play metro prime again so total recommend for me thanks brian yeah i came to replay this after a very long period of time with a uh, enormous affection and fondness and i wonder if maybe partly one of the reasons that i'd never gone out of my way to replay it on the Wii or the Wii U or emulation before was partly because it was one of those where I had such impeccable memories and such an experience of playing it at the time, 2003, on that particular setup at that particular time in my life when the game was state-of-the-art kind of levels of of, uh, audiovisual prowess and also just, yeah, just such a a really well-put-together game in the end despite as 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 we alluded to those apparent developmental issues uh but now i have come back to it as i say maybe in not in the optimal setting in a way on the wrong kind of screen um but uh nonetheless uh still captivated me for the amount of time that i've been able to play it um hopefully i will get time to go back and uh finish the adventure off although i suspect what may happen is that the switch version will drop before i've completed the wii the wii version and i'll end up starting all over again in which case so be it um because uh that that atmosphere that sense of being there um those environmental puzzles all that stuff will uh won't have aged any anymore um even if yeah there's a few elements that could do with a little polish perhaps in in 2022 maybe this remaster will even address some of them we shall see if it's had any kind of coding work done to it if it's a a full-blown i'm sure it isn't a demon souls type you know kind of 
overhaul, but it might be a it might be it might be more than just textures and resolution, um, which would be cool. We'll see if it even exists. But I recommend that version that possibly exists. And let's finish with Carl. So I have a lot of faith that we are going to get this Switch version. Um, I think there'll be a direct. I'll be called. I think there'll be a trailer for Metroid Prime Four, and I think they'll drop the game on yeah, the stores. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and if or with the sense of confidence I have, when that happens, forty nine ninety nine. Uh, uh, yeah, probably. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, Switch Premium uh, charge. Do you know what? You could spend forty nine ninety nine many worse ways yeah. than on the game. I think as good as this, but I really hope it is not that much. Um, I hope they haven't had any uh, influences yeah. after the Last of Us Part mm. One. Um, yeah, I, I just think i i've I've had an adventure with this game that lasted ten years before I even played it. And a lot of mental formulation about what I thought the game would be, what it would do good, what it couldn't do, um, and the evolution of that changed as a result of playing other games in that time. And yet, the moment I loaded it in on my Wii U uh, and played it with the Wiimote, it just instantly felt special in a way that I did not expect. I felt like I was intrinsically linked to being Samus with those controls, with the feel of that world, with the uh, exploration and the need to scan and set my own curiosity at a pacing that matched what the what it felt like the intention of the game was, with the atmosphere that dripped way beyond my expectations um and is comparable to your favorite survival horror games that are, that are all about atmosphere first uh it delivers as a vision from the director that aligns so many areas of the game from the audio to the visual to uh, the, the 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 pacing of the unlocks, to the biomes and the skill sets involved uh, to navigate those, um, it really is an amalgamation of the best parts of Nintendo and the best parts of what Retro brought to this game. And even twenty years or ten years later, for me, the game still holds something over me that makes me want to experience that world and i would have done so had i not lost my uh sensor bar for my wii u wow. um which is frustrating somebody makes replacements um, don't they so yeah but I, you can use uh, the other candles, option was to go the other option was I, I have actually looked into that <laughs> um but i'm not even joking listening i, I just want to do it the right way yeah it is actually a genuine thing i looked into the uh, emulation i think if that's an option try it um i for one really am all about the the wiimote implementation for a input device i loathe it absolutely shines on this game and uh i just think it brings the whole experience together if there is 
a Switch version that is released, I implore people to try it because I genuinely believe that this game really is that special. Try both control methods, maybe, if that's the option on the Switch version. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it'll be interesting to see um, if we continue the Metroid series, which is the plan uh, to talk about the, the sequels, which are probably not as well-beloved as the original, and it'll be interesting to talk about why, but that's for the future, as is Metroid Fusion, which we'll be covering in a number of weeks' time. I can't remember exactly. But for now, it remains for me, Leon, to thank Brian and Carl and editor Jay. And uh, if Brian's Metroid soundtrack has leaked out of his headphones and into his microphone, uh, Jay, Jay will be on the warpath, Brian. I'm warning you now. <laughs> <laughs> as well as thanking our correspondents and, of course, you for listening. Next time in issue 540, we go back even further in time to the world of cool 80s Sega ninjas in our Shinobi podcast.